Welcome to The Q Word, a podcast about the tips, trends, and taboos of emergency nursing, where we pull the hospital curtain back on issues that emergency nurses and their patients often think about but seldom talk about. You found the Q Word Podcast. This episode is sponsored by the Region 5 RTAC and the Georgia Trauma Commission. As part of the state of Georgia's trauma system, EMS Region 5's Regional Trauma Advisory Committee works to improve trauma outcomes in central Georgia. The RTAC is composed of EMS agencies, participating hospitals, trauma system stakeholders, and members of the public. Hello, Anissa. Welcome back to the fourth and final episode of this particular series on special populations in trauma. Here we are for geriatrics. This is the end of life, our little Darwinian evolutionary tree that we've developed in this uh, journey that we've taken from pregnancy to pediatrics to bariatrics now to geriatrics. That's right. This is indeed a special population. It's one close to my heart because I am soon to be part of that population. I think you've got a little while. Some would say I'm already there. <laughs> no one's saying that. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> Get out of here. All right. So what do we actually mean by geriatrics? If I don't qualify for geriatrics, when do I qualify? So in general... Is it an AARP sort of thing? or In general, we're talking about 65 or older. Okay. So um, we're talking about this phenomenon called senescence, which is the act of aging or biological reversal. That kind of sounds like it could be fun, meaning you're getting younger, but I don't think this means younger. I think this means weaker. Yeah. (laughs) And maybe worse, at least judging from my own not quite yet geriatric development. That's right. It's kind of falling apart a little bit. Yeah, it's definitely happening. But with age comes (laughs) wisdom, right? Maybe. Sure. Sure. That's what they say. So what is the number one cause of trauma in geriatric patients? I'm going to guess that it's motor vehicle collision. Ooh, you'll be so close. That is number two. What? I know. It's been number one for every other population. It was going to sweep the category, but falls edges it out. So for geriatrics, the number one is falls. Uh, 40% of unintentional deaths in this age group is related to falls. Wow. That is a huge number. Yeah. And there's a lot to talk about with falls. There are a lot of reasons why geriatric population fall. There are biological reasons and environmental reasons. Okay, so like some of the biological causes. What uh, I remember my grandfather had trouble seeing because he developed uh, his problems with his eyes, right? Like cataracts and or something like that. So he slipped a lot. Yeah, so you got cataracts, you got glaucoma, you've got night vision problems. Mm. Um, a lot of the geriatric population gets put on blood pressure control. And sometimes if you overshoot, put them on too much, then they develop hypotension or orthostatic hypotension. And so they will syncopize and Mm. that's technically a fall. Um, What about some environmental causes? Okay. Uh, Well, snow, ice. (laughs) Yeah. So slippery floors, throw rugs, stairs, 
poorly fitting shoes actually causes falls in the geriatric population and then poor mm. lighting. Okay. Um, so the majority of these falls that we're talking about are just from a standing position. Actually, just a fall from a standing position can wreak havoc in a geriatric person. Even a fall from sitting, including a wheelchair, can yeah. cause some significant injuries. And some of the top injuries that we're talking about are a hip fracture or a head injury where um, a geriatric patient hits their head. Yeah, we talked in, uh, wasn't it the pediatrics about how um, how pliable and resilient children's bones were and how the opposite is true for, uh, um, for geriatric bones, That's that right. they're pretty brittle and they break very easily. So there's that old, you know, hip hip breaking thing that seems to happen to all of us at some point in time in our older years. Yes. And it's not unheard of for a geriatric patient to be climbing on a roof or climbing on a ladder <laughs> or standing on a chair to do some project that they probably should have gotten someone younger to do. And then they fall. I have several people in my life who I worry about for those very reasons. I'm like, you did what? You climbed on what? I wouldn't even do that. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, um, how can you be sure if it was really a fall, though, um, that was just like a slip? Because I, um, again, I'm thinking of past experiences where I've had friends who thought they just um, slipped and fell, but actually they blacked out um, or they um, they uh, had a might have, might have had a stroke or something like that, which caused that they didn't remember it. But they woke up on the ground and thought, oh, I just slipped and fell and hit my head. Yeah, so it's really important when you have a patient who comes in and reports having a fall, a geriatric patient that reports having a fall, to find out was it really, in fact, a fall? Or was mm. this a trauma that was caused by syncope? Was this a trauma that was caused by crushing chest pain that led to falling down? Was this um, a neuro cause, an electrolyte imbalance, or was this truly simply a mechanical fall? So okay. this trauma patient may actually by themselves an entire neuro workup, a cardiac workup. Um, so a seasoned emergency professional will know that a fall is not always just a fall in the geriatric population and deserves some exploration. But let's, okay. let's talk about MVCs because they are um, number two and they okay. are actually five times more fatal in the geriatric population than they are in younger drivers. Is it because of those, those brittle bones? Yeah, it's, it's multifactorial. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I found was super fascinating when I'm looking at the facts behind geriatric MVCs is they don't have to do with excessive speed. They don't have to do with alcohol. They don't have to do with night driving or unfamiliar roads or bad weather, all of the factors that um, factor into fatalities in younger drivers, mm. they actually have to do with what's left. What mm. do you think? Uh, probably bad decision making, as in <laughs> they didn't look right, they can't see very well, they can't hear very well, their reaction times aren't very strong, but they're fiercely independent and don't want to lose their uh, right to drive uh, from point A to point B, and so they stubbornly stick to driving when probably they shouldn't. That's what yeah. I would guess. It's it's all of those things. It's memory, judgment, vision, hearing, and reaction times. Ultimately, failure to yield is the cause that is five times more fatal in the so, geriatric population. Not drag racing, not drinking. <laughs> Just, I didn't see that yield sign, and I plowed right into traffic. That's right. Wow. Um, 
And a coworker tells a story, a family story that illustrates this point beautifully that I think is, it's kind of hilarious because it has a happy ending. Um, his 93 year old grandfather was living in assisted care and he had a burgundy Lincoln grand marquee that he was super, super proud of. Mm -hmm. And, um, so grandpa had to go to dialysis three times a week. And so he would literally pull out of the driveway of the assisted living, drive down the highway into the parking lot of dialysis. And that's, that's the route, like parking lot, highway, parking lot, and then back again three times a week. And that's the only places he would go. Like that's the only place he would drive himself three times a week, the end. Um, and so two o'clock in the morning, his daughter gets a call from the police saying that grandpa is in the parking lot of the McDonald's at 2 a.m. in his Burgundy Lincoln Grand Marquis. And he had gotten confused, woken up in the middle of the night, thinking it was time to go to dialysis, but then somehow gotten disoriented and ended up at the McDonald's. So they escorted him home. The next morning she came and said, you know, dad, it seems that you got confused last night and, um, and he was, you know, like, balderdash, it's fine. I just, you know, I got confused with the time. It's no big deal. And she's like, no, I'm going to have to take your keys. And from now on, I will drive you wherever you need to go. And I'll be taking you to dialysis. And it's going to be fine. It's just that time. And um, so it was about two weeks uh, went by. And she was driving down the highway. And she sees a burgundy Lincoln Grand Marquis 55 miles an hour down the highway going the opposite direction. Oh, no. <laughs> Grandpa at the wheel. <laughs> and uh, so she followed him back to the assisted living and, of course, called him out and busted him. was mm -hmm. like, hey, um, I saw you driving on the highway. And he said, honey, I'm 93 years old. Do you think I only had one set of car keys? <laughs> so, you know, it becomes an independence issue. And it's, uh, I I'm sure it's a very difficult thing for families and for, you know, for for the, the geriatric patient, ger geriatric person. Especially if they live alone and they need to get to places like their dialysis or to the doctor and to public. And, you know, and... they don't see the problem, yeah. you know, until it becomes the problem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and then the third, uh, the third thing, third most common trauma is going to be burns. And this is often caused from smoking in bed. Mm. Um, also clothes catching on fire and um, prolonged exposure to a hot object. Why would they um, prolong their exposure to a hot object? Is there a lack of sensation that might account for them keeping their hand on a hot stove or something? So a condition like diabetic neuropathy would decrease your sensation. So it would take a lot longer for them to register that something was hot. And by the, that time, the damage has been done. I see. Okay. That makes sense. Hmm. So um, a special consideration when triaging a geriatric patient, according to the 2012 Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma Guidelines, mm -hmm. a lower threshold for trauma activation should be used for injured patients with advanced age, and that's greater than or equal to 65 years of age. Um, when triaging the mortality of patients who appear uninjured mm -hmm. or with minor injuries is up to 44%, so over-triage these patients. So they're fragile, like, like delicate, valuable Little. Fabergé eggs. That's right. Treat them oh. like a little Fabergé egg. Oh. 
And the reason that we say over triage and the reason that we say treat them like this is because the effects of their pre-existing medical conditions, their polypharmacy, and their previous procedures or surgeries and previous procedures, the effects of all of those are cumulative. It makes them a very complex patient. I see. So all the uh, the multiple drugs that they might be on to treat different pa- different conditions, the conditions themselves, and anything that they ever had done to treat those conditions overcomplicate things. That's correct. Okay. On occasion, you will have a geriatric patient who will come into your trauma bay or come into your ER and tell you, I have no past medical history. I take no daily medications. What do you think that means? (laughs) Bullshit. (laughs) I'm sorry. I have a previous medical history and I take daily medications and I'm not geriatric. Everybody I know takes some sort of daily medication, even if it's just aspirin for crying out loud. So that is bull. I would call them out as bull. Can I do that? Can I just call that out? Or do you have to be more political? Yeah, you do. It probably means that they haven't seen a physician. It just means that they don't go to the doctor. Mm, It might not mean that they're... It just means that it's it's an undiagnosed (laughs) medical condition. That is they a, haven't gone to a doctor. That is a far more charitable uh, interpretation of things. I was just going to say straight up lying is what you're doing. <laughs> you know you ain't telling the truth. You fibbing is what you're doing. Oh, it just means I haven't been to a doctor in 25 years. <laughs> okay, so we are assessing our patient. Now that we've discussed the different the epidemiology of their trauma, Let's talk about the ABCDs, which I now know through and through. What do you do in terms of an airway um, assessment when you are approaching a geriatric patient? So for the airway, our teeth are very important. And oftentimes um, in older age, they go away. And so when you don't have any (laughs) teeth... Sorry. (laughs) The teeth go away. That's true. They do. They just... They just pack up their bags one day and say, I'm out of here. Peace out. Sometimes slowly over time, one at a time. But So it's called being edentulous. And when that happens, your jaw will shrink. And that shrunken jaw can sometimes be uh, very difficult to form a nice seal for a bag valve mask. So it can cause difficulty for bagging. Also, if your patient has dentures, Uh, there are some considerations to think about for bagging. First of all, you want to check and see if during the trauma the dentures were broken. In that case, you want to remove the dentures and any denture pieces so that there's not um, an aspiration issue. Mm -hmm. If the dentures were not broken, you will leave them in for bagging because that keeps that nice form and helps that sealing, Mm -hmm. but you will remove them for intubation. And you'll put them in your pocket so that you can give them back to your patient later because they cost a pretty penny. Yeah, well, I wouldn't put them in my pocket, but I would definitely set them aside somewhere because they are very expensive. That's correct. Uh, Hearing aids are very expensive as well, so you definitely want to keep up with those. Got it. Our geriatric patients have decreased cough and gag reflexes, which makes them at increased risk for aspiration and therefore bronchospasm and infection. Okay. You're going to use caution when inserting either an oral or a nasal airway because they have very thin skin and mm-hmm. many of them are on anticoagulants. And so you can cause tissue damage and bleeding. Ooh, ooh. They also may have compromised cervical neck mobility. So these people are going to be heaven 
criteria positive. Okay. Um, and it's because they may have had fusions in the past. We talked about those procedures that they may have had. Ah. They also have arthritis. They may have developed arthritis and they may have kyphosis. With your geriatric patients, you want to intubate early. Okay. Similarly for breathing, we're going to move on to that now. Yeah, so I know the older I get, the quicker I seem to run out of air. So I would assume that breathing is really important uh, for the elder population. Right, so they have little reserves. So you definitely want to give them supplemental oxygen early, support their breathing early Mm -hmm. because of that little reserve. That's why we intubate early. Okay. Rib fractures, chest wall contusions, pneumothorax, hemothorax, all very poorly tolerated in the geriatric population. So be prepared for quick decompensation. Pain control and vigorous pulmonary toilet needs to be started immediately, including in the trauma bay. We don't often think of that as a trauma bay duty, and we want to anticipate decompensation. They will are very prone for pneumonia, pulmonary edema, atelectasis. We often talk about um, that it's not going to be this MVC that kills them. It's going to be the pneumonia that they develop in, you know, in a couple of days. Right. That's why it's very poorly tolerated. And that's why we want to start them doing that turn, cough, deep breathe, trying to get them to take those deep breaths and prevent them from developing the pneumonia. Got it. All right. All right. Do you want to move on to circulation? I very much would like to move on to circulation. So um, if you see a geriatric patient who has a systolic blood pressure of 120, Mm -hmm. that's what we consider normal in um, an average age person. Mm -hmm. But we know that as we age, our blood pressure increases. Mm -hmm. And so their normal blood pressure may hang out around 170 or 180, and 120 may actually be hypotensive for them. Ah, So be aware of that. Okay. So... We're going to give them small fluid boluses, and Mm -hmm. we're going to monitor those closely because we don't want to overload them. So the monitoring will include listening to their lung sounds. Mm -hmm. Um, We're going to be listening for crackles. Mm -hmm. Um, We're going to be listening to their heart tones as well in between each uh, fluid bolus. Okay. So um, this might not be the right place to ask it, but what about um, patients with pacemakers? Yeah, this is a great place to ask that. So pacemakers um, will control your heart rate artificially by a little little, um, device that's Mm -hmm. implanted in your chest. That can also mask um, your body's natural response to shock. So that's something we need to know if the patient is paced. Um, Other things that can mask your body's response to shock would be beta blockers. So those are things to know. Is your patient on a beta blocker? Is your patient paced? Can you um, shock up a patient with a pacemaker? Can you use a defibrillator? Mm-hmm. We can. We can also deactivate a pacemaker from the out for externally with a magnet. Um, so if your trauma patient is complaining of chest pain, mm. you want to know: was it before the trauma? Was it after the trauma? Was it a chicken and egg situation? Did it cause the trauma? Are they having dysrhythmias on the monitor? Like, so did they have a STEMI that caused them to wreck their car? Did they have a STEMI that caused them to fall off the ladder? I see. So um, are we dealing with a heart attack that led to a car accident? And then also a lot of these patients are anticoagulated. Is this something that we need to reverse? Okay, so... What disabilities need to be considered with a geriatric patient? So when you're assessing disability, remember that as we age, our brain mass shrinks. (laughs) And (laughs) don't I know it? (laughs) 
Yep. It, it, does it leak out of one's ears? Because that's what's been happening with me. No? Okay. I should go to the doctor. <laughs> yeah. That, uh, that space in your skull fills with cerebrospinal fluid. So what that means is in a trauma, it allows for more movement of your brain in mm. the skull, which is mm. not great. Um, it also allows for more space for blood to fill, um, uh, accumulate in the case of bleeding in the skull. Mm. That means that there's a delay in the signs and symptoms of intracranial pressure. So okay. it can mean a misdiagnosis or delayed diagnosis. So don't let that catch you. Okay. Um, let's talk about environment and exposure. What about, let me ask one more question though. So you were talking about if they had a brain injury, um, how is it that you can uh, tell whether or not the person you're speaking to, like whether, if, if they seem loopy, maybe they are suffering from dementia and kind of always are loopy as opposed to um, you don't know whether or not they're sharp. They're normally like very sharp. What, what do you, I guess you would talk to the family if you can to find out about their Yes, that's a great a great consideration in the geriatric population. So uh, the caregiver would be your authority on the person. So, sorry, you were about to go to environment and exposure. Please continue now that I have allowed you the stage again. So um, the skin of a geriatric patient is very thin and fragile. Right. This will compromise many things. Your skin is really important. So mm -hmm. it compromises their temperature regulation. So make sure that you are keeping them warm in the trauma bay. We've already cut all of their clothes off. Mm. Um, this is going to compromise their protection from infection. This is also going to make them more prone to bleeding and tearing. Mm. In addition to that, it's only going to take 30 or 45 minutes for them to develop a pressure ulcer on that long spine board. Oh, because their skin starts to starts to break down that quickly? Yes, it does. Wow. So we want to get them off quickly, quickly, quickly. What other kind of special considerations do you need to worry about? You had mentioned this word earlier. I wanted to ask you about it. And I'm, I think you're going to talk about it more now. Polypharmacy, right? That's um, all the different drugs that a patient may be on. And... A geriatric patients may be on many, right? That's right. So um, a lot of these patients suffer from chronic pain. Mm. So that means that they have an increased pain tolerance. We talked already about diabetic neuropathy. They may not feel pain. Mm -hmm. um, it may take longer exposure to painful stimuli before they register pain. So that means you've got to administer pain medications carefully. Other geriatric patients are completely pain naive mm -hmm. and are pain medication naive, uh, op opioid naive. So they would take much, much a tiny, tiny dose, whereas a, another geriatric patient, same size, same age, would take a much, much higher dose. And you're not going to know that in the trauma bay. So you've got to go uh, low and slow on these patients. But please don't let them hurt. So you've got to reassess frequently. Okay. okay. The beta blockers we talked about, those are going to mask shock by keeping their heart rate low. So don't be lulled into a false sense of security because your patient hasn't mounted tachycardia, that they're not hypovolemic. Okay. Um, NSAIDs, even just including that baby aspirin that you mentioned that everyone takes, mm -hmm. uh, that's going to decrease platelet function, which impacts their uh, ability to clot and form um, uh, or they're going to be free bleeding. And they're already maybe on anticoagulants as well, right? Yeah. So, so baby aspirins are the least of our concerns. There are uh, other anticoagulants that increase their risk of bleeding and may require aggressive reversal in the trauma bay. Wow. Okay. 
Diuretics that many of them take for blood pressure control can cause baseline dehydration and electrolyte imbalances. So that will be something that your lab work will tell you. Um, you mentioned electrolyte imbalances earlier in terms of uh, often a cause for falls as well. A fall, yeah, okay. it can lead to a fall, sure. Mm -hmm. um, meds that you're administering to them in the trauma bay may interact with meds that they are taking. Of course. Um, and then antibiotics or IV dyes that are frequently things that we give in the trauma bay need to be used with care because oftentimes geriatric patients have decreased renal function. Uh -huh. They can't clear those two things as effectively as younger people. Interesting. Okay, that makes perfect sense. So in general assessment rule of thumb, hearing and vision may be decreased, so it's going to require a little bit more patience when you are assessing these, these folks. Um, do not treat them like a child or like they are not intelligent. Don't call them honey or sweetie. Don't be condescending to them. Use their last name and sir or ma'am. Treat them with respect and deference. That's right. And this is not because I'm from the South where we tend to be formal. This is evidence-based practice. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's a, it's actually a cultural norm across myriad cultures, respect, respect for the elder uh, and, and, and it doesn't hurt. <laughs> That's right. It's it certainly, it, it, it can hurt using that with any patients, um, that kind I agree. of deference, but certainly I with agree. your geriatric patients who are probably already more confused and more afraid and have more reasons to be confused because of uh, uh, diminished mental capacity or, um, or early onset Alzheimer's or dementia, um, that deference could probably go a really long way. I agree. Mm. There is an emerging trend with our aging population, and it's called a geriatric emergency room or a designation where your emergency room is designated geriatric friendly. Mm. This is not something that I have seen in in my region, but I think I think that's very interesting. And so some of the things that you would need to include in your ER to be considered geriatric friendly would be non-skid or glare-free floors. That's mm -hmm. for your falls. Mm -hmm. um, specialty mattresses. That's for your pressure. Mm -hmm. Interdisciplinary teams that would include social workers, placement specialists, nutritionists. Okay. Um, and then screening tools for things like dementia, incontinence, nutrition, mobility, fall risks, and then gerontologists on staff. Okay. All right. So that's an interesting emerging trend. Um, so are there any ethical considerations that you need to worry about with the elder population? Um, I know that elder abuse is a big problem. Is that the kind of thing that you keep your eyes out for just like you do for child abuse or um, domestic violence for pregnant patients? Yeah, it's the same. So any population that is... Um, can't speak for themselves. So this would include the geriatric population. Medical providers could be the voice for them, just like we talked about with the pediatric population. So um, who do you report those to, those infractions? It's uh, it's in, in Georgia, it's called Adult Protective Services. Oh, okay. All right. So you would check with your local agencies. It would be a, a comparable agency. Okay. Um, it would be, and, and similar screening, it would be injuries that are suspicious, mm -hmm. and the categories are physical, sexual, neglect, again, um, psychological, even financial, yeah, or violation of their rights. 
profile of the abuser is obviously different than in pediatrics or um, the pregnant patient. So the profile of their abuser could be their spouse. Mm. It could be their middle-aged child or in-law. It can also be a hired caregiver or even a residential care home uh, could be the abuser. So um, those are profiles of the abuser. Uh, screening tools may not work because of mental capacity. It mm-hmm. might, but, um, in mental capacity cases, it may not, you may have to make observations like you would in a child. Um, but we are uh, charged to speak for those who can't speak for themselves. You're charged for that across the board. It sounds like, which is a huge burden on top of healing and caring for these patients. It's also a privilege if you look at it that well, way too. That is a, it's a, a lovely way to hear you look at it. So let's um, let's uh, finish up this episode with the same question that I've asked you for each of our special populations so far. Um, you have a geriatric patient that you've done everything for, but they have coded. What do you do? So um, there are end-of-life considerations for a geriatric patient. In a trauma resuscitation of a geriatric patient, there are no no deviations from regular trauma resuscitation. You actually would make some considerations even before the code of end-of-life issues. If their um, injuries are severe, you would want to consider things like, does this patient have a living will? What about advanced directives? Do they have a do not resuscitate, which more and more is often is being called an allow natural death order? Do those legal documents apply to acute events? Oftentimes those are written for chronic medical conditions, but would they apply Mm -hmm. to a traumatic event? How severe is this trauma? Is this trauma survivable? Is the survival of this trauma unprecedented? So for example, in in a large burn patient of an elderly person, you know, is the next of kin or the family interested in withdrawal of care? And, and then we, we do care and comfort. Those are all considerations in the geriatric population. Uh, ultimately, the wishes of the patient is what we consider with the wishes of the family in concert. But the main thing is to know in this population, many of them have considered living will, advanced directive, allow natural death. I see and whether or not it would inc- uh, include an acute event like like a trauma. I see. Okay. And and my thought and my encouragement would be if you are caring for aging parents, if you are moving into that category yourself, please consider your end of life wishes and put them down on paper, have conversations with your family. There are a lot of resources that will help you have that conversation. Um, our friend Jonathan Bartels has a um, resource called Death Over Dinner, and it's where you have this conversation about death mm-hmm. over dinner. And we will put that on our website as well. Uh, mm-hmm. helps guide the conversation and make it a little bit more, pardon the pun, palatable. Absolutely. Well, I know that you and I have already discussed our plans, and mine includes, um, I think, what, there was a hot air balloon. Uh, there was a coach and six there was definitely some royalty and fireworks involved. I think I wanted uh, to be shot into space. We'll we'll go over this. Okay, that's a tall order, yeah. but I can handle it. I know you can, and I'll I'll uh, do whatever it is you need as well. Nisa, this was all vastly interesting, um, and I hope that our audience finds it as interesting as well. Okay.
this wraps up this particular portion of our series on special populations in trauma. And we hope that you enjoyed it. And we'll also go back and check out other episodes of the Keyword Podcast. Yeah, many thanks to the Region 5 RTAC for uh, tapping us for this super interesting series. We loved it. Yes, I've had a lot of fun with it. All right, Nisa, I will talk to you soon. Take care of yourself. All right. Bye. All right. See you soon.